You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. From baseball's top personalities. The great Chris Russo joins us once again. To the game's top players. Joining us is the all-star. Matt Chapman with us. You never know what stories you're going to hear. If you make your way down here, I, I might be able to make some time and go out there and see the great Chris Townsend. This is A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. Ray Fossey, where you were in Cleveland in 1972? Yes, I was, Tommy. How you doing, buddy? I was born in 1972. I was born at the start of the A's dynasty. Tommy, Carol and I played. We had a Cleveland had a game. I've said this before, but the Indians, we played in the afternoon, and Carol and I went back to our condo. And we had gotten married in 70, so 72. We had a condo in uh, in uh, South Cleveland. Nobody lived in downtown Cleveland, so we were south of, of Cleveland. Now, it's a little bit different now. But uh, we, we were living in a condo, and I turned on the TV, and I just yelled, like, Carol, look, look, these guys are wearing mustaches and long hair, and, and nobody at the time did that. So that was my introduction to the, uh, the future world champion, Oakland Athletics because the great late Charlie Finley had the promotion about guys grow mustaches, grow whatever, we'll give you money, give you money which as uh, Raleigh Fingers would say, 200 bucks at the time with a, uh, a gold-plated mustache comb was a lot of money to the Oakland A's. So they took it and uh, yeah, I was in Cleveland and you know, as much as I didn't want to be traded, it turned out to be the greatest thing because you know what? All these years later, as I've said, I get to sit here and talk to you guys, and uh, it's been it's been a blessing. And I, I thank my wife Carol because she kept saying, you know, there are two teams in the Bay Area, and and so we kind of settled here, and uh, the rest is history. Fortunately, I've been part of the Oakland A's organization for many many years, and uh, I'm very blessed and uh, very blessed to be on the air with you guys, and uh, happy to be here today, especially after a big one yesterday. You know, and, and I know we joke about it all the time, but I really mean it. When I call you the face of the franchise, uh, you know, you're, you're the one you're the one person that bridges the gap of the greatness of the A's in the 70s to where we are today. You're the guy. And, well, I, I appreciate and I got to tell you, Ray, and, and stop being humble, because guys that I know that are my age and a little bit older who I hang out with, like their whole life they've known you you're the one constant of a's baseball in their entire life and i've brought a couple of a couple of them down on the field and i've had you go over and meet them and you know how they react when they meet you yeah well i i will say it it's, it's kind of interesting and and you know don't really i don't think about it i i just uh enjoy what i do i love baseball always have but I was someplace the other day, and of course, with the mask, you never know what a person's doing behind the mask, you know. And I think Matt Pearl, after the A's clinched the Western Division, he had a he had a picture of himself, uh, and he said, "I'm smiling under this mask." Well, you don't know. And so I, I asked the gentleman about something. He goes, "Hey Ray, how you doing?" I went, "Huh?" And I was kind of shocked. He said, "I recognize the voice." So again, it's something I don't think about, but. You know, uh, Tony, again, to, to have been in the Bay Area, and again, I give my wife, Carol, a lot of credit because, uh, uh, you know, she's from the Valley, and uh, we settled in the area, and I've been here a long time, obviously, but uh, I appreciate the, 
the compliments, but you know, that 72 team and, um, you know, Joe Rudy is such a treat. And I think Cody's going to call him because you have, I think you have the general manager, David Forster on a 10. Correct. So we're going to call Joe right now. Yeah. Call Joe because, you know, he, he's such a great, great person. And, uh, you know, he and his wife, Sharon down in Florida. Now they were up in Baker, Oregon and to uh, the Las Vegas area. And then, uh, on to Florida where he's settled right now. So, um, this is Joe. There is Joe. Joe. Joe, how you doing? It's Chris Towns with the Oakland A's and your old teammate, Ray Fossey. Oh my God. Is he still alive? <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, you, you're, you're already up my friend and you've had several cups of coffee because you're back on the East coast and, uh, and uh, how's how's Sharon doing? She's doing great. She's getting better every day. Or uh, you know, uh, down with her physical therapy, she's just got to continue to work on getting her full range of motion back in her left arm. So she's doing good. No more pain, thank goodness. Well, that's good. I know you're in the you're in the great Florida area where the sun always shines and it's always nice. I was in. Uh, <laughs> uh, you, know, you know how that works. And I played instructionally one one often. And it was one of those things you walk outside and you don't have to do anything. And compared to when we were in Arizona in spring training, uh, the comparison of Florida, you walk out, throw one one ball and you're loose. And in Arizona, you got to throw about 20 to get loose. So it's it's a little bit of different climate. Exactly. But, uh, you know, I'm happy for you, my friend. And it's, a, it's an exciting time. And I know Chris and, and Cody Elias, Cody, of course, contacted you and uh, – um, I'm very happy to have you on to talk about. Hey, listen, that great catch you made, and, and everybody's talking about 48 years ago. Where were they? And Cody, what'd you say, Cody? You're a minus 16. Yeah, I was born in 1988, <laughs> so I wasn't even a thought in my parents' mind yet. <laughs> oh my but, Joe, but Joe, Joe, that that great catch in the World Series, and again, Vince Catronio yesterday. Uh, on the call, you know, he referenced you so quickly, making the, the call that the catch that you made in 1972. Take us back to that. And, and, and basically, I know you give a lot of credit to one coach who really helped you play an outstanding outfield. But take us back to 1972. I think it was game two in Cincinnati. Right. Yep. When, yep. when, when you Dennis made – when you made – yeah, Dennis Minkin, you made the fabulous catch. Take us back, as, and I know you remember it like it happened yesterday, but uh, take us back to that time because we saw it again almost uh, exactly with Mark Hanna yesterday. Yeah, people don't realize the, you know, the, the thousands of times that you practice that very catch type of thing. Uh, like as you were referencing, Coach, you know, with the A's, myself especially, we're very blessed when we moved from Kansas City to Oakland that we had Joe DiMaggio, who was, you know, fairly yeah. decent outfielder, I think, if I remember <laughs> right. <laughs> anyway, you know, he was our outfield coach. And, I, you know, I'm shortstop and bounced around third base a little bit. And they finally, Bob Kennedy was trying to make me into a left fielder. And, uh, you know, he took me under his wing that year in 68 and uh, starting in spring training. Joe DiMaggio was out there every day before games from spring training all the way through the seasons, all of. 68, 69, trying to teach me footwork, you know, how to, you know, focus on, you know, the, the ball getting up to the hitter, eye shift from the pitcher to the hitter, and where to look in front of the hitter to see the bat come through. And, you know, just learning your footwork was hard enough. And then turning your back on a ball and going back and being on the right line and understanding that every ball 
you know, right field, left field, if the ball's hit right at you or towards the line, it's always going to be curving. Whether it's right hand mm-hmm. or the left handed hitter, it's always moving towards the line. And uh, you always have to adjust for that as you turn because your first instinct, like that ball, was my to rotate to my left. And then I had to make that adjustment back to towards the line as the ball started moving that way. But again, it was one of those wonderful things with, with the Joe D that, you know, we practiced and practiced and practiced. And I had a heck of a time learning line and go to the right spot. And, uh, you know, as uh, Yogi Bear used to say, it's a, you know, deja vu all over again because we <laughs> practiced that thousands and thousands of times uh, going back and on that ball and watching him yesterday again he's got to bust his butt to get back to the fence and actually that ball as an outfielder going to your left or your glove side I should say because it happened to if you're right-handed uh, or left-handed thrower in right field like Reggie was uh, that ball to your left as you're running hard and trying to judge because the glove is over to your left, you really can't, you know, you're focusing on the ball and you open your gloves in the right spot. It, to me, it's actually a tougher catch. I mean, it was a, a super catch in a, in a very, t- you know, must-win situation. That's amazing that uh, that you worked on it that much. And, Chris, jump in here anytime. I, I know I, I've got – several things to talk to Joe about, but, uh, Are you but Chris, kidding how would you, me? you guys, you guys just go, just go. Chris, Chris, Chris I have to ask you though, Chris Townsend, how, how would you like to have the great Joe DiMaggio teaching you to play the outfield? I, I, I got to tell you every single time I go into Vuce's office and I see the picture of <laughs> Joe DiMaggio and, you know, cause for me growing up, Joe D was a Yankee, you know, he's one of the biggest celebrities in America at the time and Marilyn Monroe and reading about him and seeing all that Joe, just to think that you got Joe DiMaggio as your coach. I mean, it's just, it, it's incredible to think of the greatness that you had around you that you were able to learn from. I, it really is. He was so in awe going to spring training, you know, and Joe D and like you said, the order around him and everything else, but he was a great guy. He was just, he was, he was just another player. I mean, once he got around the players, he was just one of the guys. He was a jokester and liked to screw around, and he was great. You know, he got very, uh, I guess you call him distance, when he got around writers or people he didn't know. He was very cautious and guarded in that area. But with the players, he was just one of the guys. He'd go out there and yell at you and call you stupid and, you know, <laughs> you know where, where are you going? And, you know, I mean, it was just a, so much fun to work with him all the time. And, uh, you know, people don't realize back then, I, you know, ballplayers didn't make a lot of money. We had, uh, I remember 67, we had uh, Gabby Hartnett, who was a Hall, Hall of Fame catcher, is one of our coaches. Luke Affling, wow. Hall of Fame catcher from – or shortstop from the White Sox, yeah. was one of our coaches. Haywood Sullivan – uh, you know, there was a lot of great coaches back then that stayed in the game. And uh, yeah. as you said, try, you know, learning from Joe D. I mean, who who else to teach all that stuff? Uh, uh, just a great guy. Joe, one of the things in, in watching the replay from your catch, uh, when you caught the ball, you put it in your right hand and you you, you raised it. Was there a concern that maybe – you didn't think that they thought you caught the ball. Well, I mean, I don't even know if it's a reaction, but why did you take the ball out and, and put it in your right hand and put it up and then throw it back in and almost doubled off? I think it was Tony Perez at first base. But, uh, you know, what what was behind that? 
Well, I think as I went back to catch the ball, is one of the things Joe D taught me was, you know, when you're going up against the hard wall, you know, we didn't have padding back in those days. Yeah. As you go yep. up to catch a ball, especially backhanded like that, or, or either way, especially backhanded, uh, you know, as you catch the ball and you bang into the wall, it's really easy for the wall to knock the ball out of your glove. So as you catch the ball, you rotate your hand. And hmm. so you hit the hit the the wall with the front of your glove, not not the web back backing of it. And so as I caught the ball down coming down, I'm afraid that they're thinking that I caught the ball on a rebound off the wall. And yeah. so that's one of the reasons I held the second uh, to show them I had the ball and then threw it in. You know, to, made a good throw to Campy and a good throw to first, and just missed doubling him off first. But uh, that was my first thought. And of course. Uh, Sparky Anderson came out and argued because of the, the you know the bang the crash you could hear me banging into the wall. Uh, he came out and argued that I had trapped the ball off the wall. But thank goodness, you know, in the World Series you have six umpires and we had the umpire down the left field line, so he saw how I because he even put his hand up and showed him we rotated his left hand like I did after I caught the ball. And uh, you know that was my first thing. My first influence my went through my brain was I hope they don't think I trapped the ball. That's, that's a great point. How, how was it playing the outfield with no padding compared to today when you see, all, I mean, everything's padded. It's almost, uh, I don't know if a player would play in the outfield without the padding, but how, how difficult was it for you as an outfielder to know that you needed to make a play like that? And you, you obviously, you knew the warning track, you had, what, three steps and to the wall, and you knew you were going to bang into it. How much of a concern was it for you as an outfielder knowing that there is no padding and you are going to hit the wall hard, and it could affect you. Well, I, I think it's no different than you as a catcher going back to the screen. Some of those things didn't have a lot of padding for you back there either. You know, you can't really think about it. I mean, you're totally focused on the ball, and you know you're going to hit the wall, and you just sort of prepare yourself to control the impact where it's not going to knock your glove out of out of a sort. I think the worst uh, bang or crash into the wall I ever had was in 73 against the Mets. And uh, I'm trying to remember who the hitter that hit that ball. You know, they had plexiglass in front of the, uh, right. the, they had the walls, but in front of the bullpens straightaway left behind me was all plexiglass. So there was no way you could see it out of the corner of your eye. And I think it was Cleon Jones hit, hit a rocket back there. I went back and caught the ball and didn't know I was right there at the wall because I had run quite a while. I hit that wall and it, I don't know if you remember, it spun me around in a, in a circle and knocked yeah. me down because uh, I didn't know the wall was there. And so that was the other thing, you know, your peripheral vision sort of helps you out prepare that you're going to hit the wall. And uh, we just, it was, you know, accepted. Uh, we never thought about, well, it doesn't have padding or it does, uh, but I'm sure glad they do. <laughs> well, you know, just a quick point of reference. I know when you had came from Cuba and played here and he kind of shied away and uh, finally, uh, Ariel Prieto was his interpreter, and he told everybody they had concrete walls in Cuba. There was no such thing as padding. So there was a reason that he would shy away. But the, the, the one thing, Joe, today for the athletics and the White Sox, it's winner take all. And Cody Elias, of course, brought up the fact that 73 was the last time. It, correct, correct me if I'm wrong. Is that what you said, Cody, the last time there was a winner take all for the athletics in, in uh, Game 7 of the World Series in 73? That's correct. Game seven of the 70, uh, 73 World Series was the last winner-take-all win for the uh, Oakland A's. Okay, I want to go right. back with yeah. Joe because, Joe, you were there 
with the A's in 72, you had a winner-take-all against the Tigers game five. At the time, the league championship series, unlike now, is seven. It was five during that period of time. You had that against the Tigers, and unfortunately, your good friend Reggie Jackson injured his hamstring, couldn't play in the World Series. But then also game seven against the, the Reds is a, what is a winner-take-all as well, and you guys won. How much did that help? Because I came over in 73, and, and thankfully I did because I got a chance to get two rings with you guys. But how much did what happened in 72 with the League Championship Series and the World Series help you going forward in 73 to experience the same thing? Well, I, I think, you know, we played that way all year. You know, it was a big difference of today's how the game's played. You know, we had Dick Williams, who was an ex extreme stickler for small ball. You know, he did, yeah. you just didn't make mental errors with him. And, you know, when you got uh, thrown the wrong base, uh, man on second base with nobody out, you got to get that guy to third. Uh, you know, there was no excuse for not getting him over there or hitting the fly ball for the runner from third with, with less than two outs and that type of thing. So we played an awful lot of games, you know, three to two, two to one, that were really tight games. Unfortunately, we had a very good defensive team. and. Uh, and just, you know, getting used to playing that type of ball day in and day out, I think we were prepared to get into those type of games as we moved in. You know, 71, we were still a little bit young. got swept by the uh, Baltimore in the playoffs. And uh, I, I think uh, he did a better job preparing us in 72, getting ready for that season. And, uh, you know, it was a tough series with the Tigers. And, of course, First uh, great team. We just happened to have better pitching and got a little more timely hitting here and there, and got some breaks uh, as every team needs to, to win. And so, all you can do is go out and do your best, and uh, you know it's going to happen. <laughs> and so you uh, you got to be prepared for it. Joe, one of the things that Dick Williams did in Game Seven, he put Dave Duncan behind the plate because he figured the Reds were going to be running. And Gino has always told me the best day in his life was when I got traded to Oakland in 73 because he didn't have to catch because he wanted to play first base and didn't want to have the bumps and bruises behind the plate. But, but what did you see in game seven that basically you, you felt that you had a chance to win because of playing those close games, but some of the changes that were made by Dick Williams, I know he did it with me in 73, game six and seven. He put Darren Johnson in first base um, and, and Gino caught to start out. I ended up finishing the games, but the, the changes that had to be made and were made by Dick Williams during those, those couple of years, what did that say to you guys about how much he wanted to win? No, as I said, he was a stickler and, 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 you know, all those, both those seasons that we were, well, actually I got to play for him three years, 71, he was there. Right. Uh, you know, when he came, when he came over and joined the team in 71, you know, he just changed the whole middle attitude of that ball club and uh everybody started playing basic fundamental baseball and uh you know coming into those series like you said I mean, you know he was a he studied things he knew what was going on you know put mike egan at first base remember the great play he made over there and yeah. uh, of course duncan had a duncan had a great arm and uh it was uh it's just one of those things you know at times dave struggled at, at the bat as we all do going in and out of times when we're struggling at, at, hitting and uh, so he he I thought he did a masterful job of moving people around uh, you know bringing catfish in to, to close the game uh, you know <laughs> using Raleigh at, at different times and and just the way he strategized 
using everybody. I mean, the whole 25-man roster, he, he used everybody. You know, the one thing, Joe, that, uh, as I mentioned before, your good friend Reggie Jackson injured his hamstring in uh, Detroit Game 5 of the League Championship Series and could not play. I can still visualize him on crutches in the World Series uh, when you guys went to Cincinnati. The A's lost Matt Chapman, platinum glove winner, you know, two consecutive years. How did you guys go into the World Series knowing that you did not have your big bat in the lineup, but knowing that you still had a good team to win, but missing that link, as the A's obviously are missing Matt Chapman, how did you guys handle the World Series knowing that Reggie was not going to be there? Well, it was a big shock. You know, fortunately, Reggie, through his play, you know, actually scored the winning run to help us, you know, yeah. clinch the winning the, the playoffs against the Tigers. That's how he got hurt was scoring that winning run. And, uh, you know, it was a tough play. Bill Freehan was a, a big guy who was their catcher, yeah. and he was blocking the plate. And, uh, and Reggie did a great job to get just to even score. But, uh, you know, going forward, I, I think especially in 72, we were so happy as a team to be in the World Series. Uh, we didn't really have time to even think about we're going about against the big red machine. And uh, fortunately, uh, you know, uh, they probably had a much better overall hitting team than we did, but we had the pitching and the defense. Yeah. We had a great defensive team and we had great pitching, great relief pitching. And uh, I think when we won the first game, we go, hey, you know, we can win a game here. And then we win second game and go, whoa. Uh, you know, maybe these guys, you know, maybe our pitching is that good, and which it did turn out to be. And we had tough games even out in Oakland. Uh, uh, those games were, were tough out there. They took two out of three from us. And then coming back, uh, we had to fly all night, got in there like I think about dawn in '72 because we had the rain out, yeah. and so we had to, we didn't have a, we didn't have a day off. So we had to fly after the game Friday all night, get into Cincinnati catch a couple hours sleep and go to the ballpark. And I think everybody was sort of groggy. I'm, I'm trying to remember, but it seems like almost every, all the games were like three to two, except that Saturday game. Uh, trying to think maybe there's one, uh, one to nothing game in there in Oakland, but we had a lot of really, you know, one run games through that whole series. And uh, as you know, people say good pitching usually stops uh, good hitting. Yeah. And that's what happened for us. And I know today is going to be a tough game in Oakland. And uh, it's, you know, it's a battle. You know, if you used to say you go home after every game, you got a severe headache just from concentrating so much because <laughs> every pitch, whether you're on defense or, or offense, you can't afford to take a pitch off. You know, you've got to be locked in on every, especially on defense. You just can't afford to give up and, and you know, extra run here or there. And uh, pretty much that's what Dick Williams taught us to do, you know, all year long. So by the time we got into those playoffs, we were prepared mentally to play. Joe, before I let you go, and appreciate your time because um, I, I, I wanted to ask you, because of the COVID-19 this year, the one thing that is missing, and, and obviously times have changed because of the analytics and a lot of things that go on, but in 1972, you guys were playing the Reds, and you had not seen them. How important, and, and explain the scouting report that you guys got. I saw, I saw what happened in 73 against the Dodgers when I was part of that. But, but how important was the scout? And I'd try, you know, you know his name. I can't remember his name. But talk about the importance of the scout telling you all the details of about the Cincinnati Reds that helped you guys beat them in the first of three consecutive World Series? 
Oh, it was phenomenal. I mean, like you said, we hadn't really faced them that much. And, uh, you know, I'm sure they still have the same thing today. We used to have what we call forward scouts that would be going to the team that you're going to play next and watching the pitchers, watching the hitters, you know, how's this guy handling whatever pitches uh, as a hitter and where to play him, where is he trying to hit the ball, uh, what pitchers are going to throw what pitches in that situation. And I know when we uh, we got Cincinnati and, uh, you know, Dick Williams and the coaches obviously met, and I'm sorry, I cannot remember. I almost want to say Clyde Klutz, but I don't think that was him. Uh, the guy Was it like Krister? I don't remember the name now, but he did a phenomenal job. I mean, he gave a book literally to Dick Williams. If you watch the replays of the World Series, Dick was constantly pulling stuff out of his pocket, and he had like a book of information on every player, uh, where, where we should play the play, you know, defensively, where, where should we be playing on a defensive load? And, and then, uh, you know, went out, look at the number of times he went to the mound. And yeah, I think yeah. they finally came out with a rule about you can only go so many times without <laughs> taking the pitcher out. Was that because of Dick Williams in, in 72? But, um, it, it, I mean, it was critical. I really don't think we'd have won that World Series without that scouting report because it was so detailed uh, for everybody. I mean, he had stuff for us in the outfield, the infield, the pitchers, and what pitches the guys were hitting. I mean, it was to me, it was one of the best scouting reports I've ever seen. And you did it all from memory. You didn't have something in your back pocket that you referenced? Not really, you know, we, 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 uh, not anymore, you know, back then we had to really memorize guys and, uh, you know, one of the blessings that, that, that we had was, especially after Billy North came over was, as you remember, you know, the guys like, you know, Tony Oliva, Rod Carew, George Brandt, I mean, the guys that are really good hitters, you know, they're going to hit the ball. And we used to stack the defense a little bit like they do now in the infield, but, you know, back then we just, you know, say, crew or a Brett, you know, they're going to hit the ball where it's pitch. So let's throw them hard yeah. fastballs away. I'd play really shallow. Billy and, and Reggie would swing way over towards left field and Reggie's in right center. Billy's in le- left center balls over my head. Billy's got it. But I took away yeah. a lot of hits that were line drives right over Campy's head over Sal's head. Um, and uh, I didn't have to worry about behind me, but you know, you had to depend on the pitcher not to throw an off speed pitch. And the guy could pull it down the right field line, but I, if you remember those days, uh, that's pretty much the way Dick uh, taught us to play. Well, I'll close this in saying I know when I was fortunate to be traded over here, the first thing Dick Williams said to me, and you, you've talked about it throughout this, this time, he said, we pitch and we catch the ball. We don't give extra outs. And I'm sure that's what, you know, he brought it over to the Dodgers as he grew up in the Dodger organization. That's the way he was taught and he brought it over. And I'm sure just as you talked about, that's what, his influence on you guys was especially from 71 72 when you had the first experience with him i got to experience it in 73 but uh, joe cannot thank you enough for your time i know uh, chris townsend has constantly talked about one thing making contact as a hitter and i know that you i think you could right now put a bat in your hand and i've always said this and go out and hit and hit line drives because you were that great of a hitter and you still could be if you put a bat in your hand right now. So uh, continue enjoying the life in Florida. Our best to Sharon. And uh, God bless you, my friend. You're a good man. And I always look forward to seeing you hopefully sooner than later. 
I hope so. Get this virus over with. Again, our love to Carolyn. You guys stay healthy out there. And uh, we're all very blessed, weren't we? Just be in the right place at the right time. And a lot of of things came together for us, didn't it? Well, it sure did. And there are only two teams in the history of baseball that have won three consecutive world championships. The New York Yankees, of course, and the Oakland Athletics. And I think, and Cody Elias is a great statistician, he knows, but I think the last time there were three 20-game winners on the same team was in 1973 with Catfish, Kenny Holtzman, and Vita Blue. So that's quite yeah. remarkable. You guys were tremendous. You've got three world championship rings. You deserved every one of them. And uh, to me, the most underrated player, but the greatest player that ever played left field for the athletics. So, again, appreciate your time, my friend. Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> we had, Like you said, we had a great time. So good luck to the guys today, and uh, just hope we get the – the right bounces and the right breaks, correct? You got that right, Joe. Thank you, my friend. Okay, you guys have a good one. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Joe. Thank you. You're welcome. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team.